Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Acris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Acris Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson, and I'm joined by my good friend as ever, David Buick. Good morning to you, sir. And our special guest today is the CEO of Aquis, Alistair Haynes. Very good morning to you. Welcome to the programme. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Alistair. I thought it might be helpful if listeners to this podcast were to know I've known you since God was a boy, over 40 years. Firstly, I simply cannot fathom why a person of your intellect and intelligence never went to university. Why was that? And let me follow that question up by asking you whether your early days at Morgan Grenfell, alongside such venerable people as Donald Wells, Blaise Hardman, Jeff Munn, Tony Alavoyne, John Newman, and of course your great friend Robin Swift, proved every bit as valuable as a springboard to a successful career as a university education. And just to follow up on that, Alistair, tell us a bit about what life was like in a leading merchant bank in Great Winchester Street ahead of Big Bang in 1986 when Deutsche Bank came and swept you all up. Well, David, what you've pointed out is just how old I am. And of course, it's very like going down memory lane. I mean, I left school. I did A-levels well, actually when I was 16 um, and really wanted to get into finance. I had a sort of passion to be in finance. And I remember working, first of all, for Barclays Bank uh, in 451 Oxford Street. Um, and they didn't allow me to go on to a management course, uh, which I wanted to do very quickly. And I said I'd take my exams and you know, do it sort of, uh, you know, in a matter of weeks or whatever. And if they gave me the time off and they didn't. So I left and I found an advert in the Times uh, for a merchant bank that I'd never heard of called Morton Grenfell and need to say joined and joined in the cashiers department. Um, and you know, my, my, the story really starts. And I'd be very grateful for my love of racing. And I have to say the love of gambling in those days, which was as a 17 year old. And uh, there I was in the um, cashiers department, sort of going around, walking around the bank, telling people, you know, please, will you sign these checks for me? Because that was my job. Very, very obviously high powered in those days. Um, and the area I loved was the trading, the trading. And uh, there was Tony Alavoy and there was, uh, you know, as you said, Jeff Munn and the others. And I asked, and I actually remember going to them and saying, look, um, I would uh, really, really be interested in coming to join your group. And they looked at me and sort of said, well, you sort of went to private school, didn't you? We, we, that's sort of not the sort of thing we accept here. And I remember my interview uh, to this day was in the Jamaican Inn. And what I had to do was drink a bottle of white port. And if I was able to get back to the office successfully uh, without embarrassing myself, then I had a position in the foreign exchange team. And that is how I started in the trading world. Uh, today, I look around at people who have sort of PhDs in nuclear physics and sort of degrees in engineering. Um, mine was, were you capable of drinking a bottle of port? Well, I come from a family, a long family, um, actually of brewers. Uh, and therefore, drinking was one of the things I could do and actually understanding what, you know, gambling and, and the numbers and statistics. So I remember during that interview also bringing out a wallet full of um, Labbrook's corals and goodness knows what else cards. Uh, and that was it. And of course, from those days, I learned so much. I mean, I worked with fabulous people, those that you mentioned, plus a load more. And of course, you know, you learn how to trade the hard way, which is literally being thrown into the deep end. Um, and it has just paid dividends throughout my entire career. Uh, and without those people and that support, 
Um, it, it, it's just, uh, you know, it, 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 my life would be very, very different. And in fact, the irony, of course, is now I have children. Um, the same thing has happened again to my son, who does work for Aquis today. Um, he left school and didn't go to university, and I really, really wanted him to do so. Um, I couldn't. I would have been a hypocrite. But we got him on a government training scheme, which I think is one of the best things out there and people don't use enough, which actually allows people to train up if they're not necessarily suited to going to university. He's done a fantastic job here. He's one of our developers now. And, you know, I keep on saying, good goodness sake, uh, you know, to his boss, remove him. I know what he was like as a teenager. Uh, and he keep, they keep on saying, no, no, he's doing a fantastic job here. So, you know, it just goes to show university is a wonderful thing. And it really is fantastic. I don't put people off it. But for those who don't suit university, there's still a career available, and particularly in finance, if you can get properly trained. Let's let's take you on from from, from Deutsche Bank and and that they added Bankers Trust to their portfolio, um, and that took you off to to Paris, which must have been very very different indeed. I mean, not just geographically, but also socially as well. I don't know um, how different was it trading international derivatives in Paris when London might have appeared then to be slightly more suitable. Well, I think, you know, at the time, it was the classic sort of investment banking thing to do is let's find the person on the floor who speaks absolutely no French whatsoever uh, <laughs> and send them off to France, because, of course, that's a logical thing. We had lots of French speaking people. Um, so, I, again, I was thrown in the deep end. Uh, my French is still pretty poor now. Uh, but I learned numbers very quickly and standing on the trading floor, which is what we had to do. Um, interestingly enough, in France, uh, the trading floors in those days didn't speak French numbers, they spoke Swiss numbers. In other words, instead of, as everybody knows, the, the, this sort of um, slightly idiotic way of the French language, which is, you know, 80 is 80, so like 420s. Um, in, in the trading floor, it was octant, nonant, uh, so 80s and 90, which is what the Swiss say, because of course that stops the confusion that you can get when actually speaking there. So, you know, I, I love my time in Paris. Again, it was a massive learning curve. I also remember sending my boss at the time an article that had been written saying that actually living in Paris was much tougher than being sent out to sort of Japan and other places because culturally France is so very, very different, even though it's part of Europe. I didn't actually believe the article. I've grown to love the French, become a real Francophile. I have a house in France now. And I think, again, as a young person being sent to France, it's fantastic because you learn that you can never be somebody else's culture but you can actually truly appreciate what other people's culture means. And that has helped me for the various times that I have lived abroad in my life. And I think it's, it's a great thing. I look particularly on CVs if people come to me, if they have worked abroad, I put that as a huge tick because it is a stress on your life. You're thrown into the deep end and you have to learn how to adapt and live in somebody else's culture. How, how difficult is it to be accepted in the fullest way? I mean, accepted and respected did it take a long time or was it because that you well, provided I, I, a service out that I, I love not the words in France, which is just we Ecosse, which is I'm Scottish, because, of course, you know, there is a love between the French, the, the old alliance between the French and the Scots means an awful lot. And of course, I am from a Scottish family with a name like Alistair and a brother called Hamish. You know, I can't really get away with that. <laughs> and therefore, you know, you're immediately accepted into France in a way that is very, very different if you say you're English. So, you know, you have to learn the tricks of the trade. 
are you accepted? Uh, you know, are foreigners ever accepted into a particular cultural society? Well, you know, I, I hope you can become great friends. But I think the mistake a lot of people make, and I knew this and found this when I worked in the Far East in Singapore, which was you can never become somebody else's culture. And that is really some, you know, something really important because I see a lot of people who try to, but then you're never accepted. I think if you work alongside and appreciate somebody's culture, then you are going to make true friends. Let's skip along with, the, obviously after that, there were a sequence of appointments when you came back from uh, Paris, you went to James Cable to run the equity derivatives there. That was owned by HSBC. And before that, obviously by Midland Bank. Um, that I think was an interesting part of your learning curve there. But then it was the turn of ITG to benefit from your wisdom, if I could put it that way, before you became CEO of Chiax. And prior to that being purchased by BAT, so they for about $300 million. So there was a hell of a lot going on. Jointly and severally, they became quite influential equity exchanges, Chikes and Bats. Um, was it these experiences that triggered the Aquas dream? Tell us how you made this dream become a reality and what role did Aquas want to play in the, does Aquas want to play in the future? Serendipity plays an enormous part in one's life. You know, I was quietly removed from HSBC with falling out from my boss and the various sort of philosophies that they had and, and the beliefs that I had and they were sort of diametrically opposed I don't think I'm naturally somebody who fits into a large organization one of the reasons I didn't go to university I think I've always been somebody who's not really a conformist what I loved about ITG um, was that it, we were able to change the way that markets operated and that's the thing that really drives me more than anything else I love change Change is something that is not really um, human nature. People don't like changing. They like the status quo. Um, and I think I was just born in a way that I love seeing change. And, you know, it's much more a driver than money and other things is to watch things and move people into a way that you can disrupt in a positive way. That's what ITG did. And we created the first ever what's now known as a dark pool, but in those days was crossing networks. And it was a different way of trading, which was more effective and better for the end user. And of course, you know, when I left ITG, I then went and was very kindly asked. I didn't start ChaiX, but it had been started by others and was in, in a, it was in a tremendous place. But we were able to take it to become the largest exchange, equities exchange in Europe. Um, and, you know, we controlled about 21% of all equity trading by the time that it eventually got bought by BATS. And that in itself was an interesting experience because, of course, BATS bought the company. Um, I didn't believe that all the staff, and in fact, in the end, about 80% of the staff of, of ChaiX were removed and made redundant when BATS bought. And that gave me a sort of God-given opportunity to get the band back together again with a new idea, which was Aquis. And again, you know, talk about serendipitous moments. Um, it, it involves my son, but Aquis was actually created in Vodafone Tunbridge Wells, which sounds a bit bizarre. But Alexander at the time was 12. Um, anybody who has children will know that once they get to, well, actually probably younger now, but at 12 was the age where there was huge pressure to go and buy them a mobile phone. And I was buying him a phone and he wanted the latest all singing, all dancing iPhone with unlimited texts and unlimited downloads and unlimited calls and all this sort of stuff. And I realized that he would probably be downloading stuff that his mother wouldn't want him to see. He'd be talking to his mates all night and not actually doing any homework. And I bought a very, very grumpy 12 year old, a £12.99 Samsung phone. 
And it, a penny dropped that what does a stock exchange do? It manages message traffic. What does a phone company do? They manage message traffic. They're both utility businesses. But the fundamental difference between a Vodafone and what I'd been doing in the past was the model, a subscription model. And from that day, I've become a subscription junkie because what you have here in subscriptions is it changes human behavior. And we talk about change, but every listener to this podcast will in some way be involved with subscriptions. We have Spotify, we have Netflix, we have mobile phone contracts, we have TV, we have Sky, we have you know Amazon Prime. It is in every part of your life. In fact, some of the fastest growing companies in the Fortune 500 over the last 20 years are subscription models. And there has no, and we are still the only stock exchange in the world that operates a subscription model. That means we charge based on message traffic in exactly the same way as a phone company. Now, maybe it's my Scottish ancestry, but the marginal cost of zero is incredibly attractive. And, you know, I scream, you know, when I was a child, I was screamed at for being on the phone. If I was dared be there before six o'clock and call somebody up, you know, my mother would scream at me, get off the phone, it's not six o'clock yet. And then if you were talking for more than about five minutes to a friend, get off the phone. Well, my children can talk as long as they like, because I know I pay a fixed fee of $19.99 or $29.99 or whatever it is a month. And of course, that marginal cost changes the way that we look. And if we want to create liquidity in a marketplace, what better way than actually introducing the subscription model? And that really has been the driving force behind Aquis, which has made us very, very different to any other exchange there is probably in the world. How do you compete with the international bourses? Because your technology has to be spot on all the time, doesn't it? Well, again, um, it's better to be born lucky than clever. And in, in, in the case of Chi-X, we were being taken over by bats. And we were very public during this deal that we had this tremendous market share and they didn't. But they had better technology. And many of the shareholders we had were the same shareholder. And therefore, putting the two companies together, the idea was use better technology and have market share. And then you become a very, very strong power. Um, but of course, this was then referred to the Monopolies Commission, because in effect, in the UK market, this was three markets coming to two. Um, and we didn't know at the time whether the deal would go through or not go through. And I went to our board and said, well, look, you know, we've got a bit of a problem. This doesn't go through. We've been public and actually stated that our technology is pretty mediocre. Um, and therefore, that's not a good position. So we took four or five people, so all the, the top sort of developers that we had and architects, et cetera, in technology. I threw them into a room, so fed them steak once a week in a sort of darkened room and said, you've got to reinvent, redesign, and actually go out there and build a new technology. And that's exactly what they did. The irony of the story, of course, is that these people um, finished the project almost as the deal was approved by the Monopolies Commission, um, and then all of them were made redundant. And in my contract at the time, I was allowed to hire, although I was out of the market, I could hire anybody who was actually made redundant from the company, which meant that I was able to take the sort of head of sales, the head of infrastructure, the head of you know, all these developers, et cetera, and rebuild um, Aquis. And of course, everybody in technology knows, and, and I went to lawyers about intellectual property theft, I never wanted to be accused, we actually wrote in, in, a, in a different language to make quite certain that that was, that was um, you know, never going to happen. But of course, anybody who knows about technology, if you do something the second time, you do it better, faster, cheaper, more efficient, less errors. And of course, we've built 
one of the cutting edge technologies in the world for exchanges today, which means that we can be incredibly competitive. One of the three business lines we have is Aquis Technologies, and we license and sell this. And we've continued to develop this technology, so much so that we are providing technology as the first exchange in the cloud. So, you know, it, it's technology is one of the three things that sits in the heart of Aquis. The others, of course, being innovation and transparency. But, you know, technology. So we were, again, you know, we talk about being lucky. We built something, we had the staff available, and we were able to put it back together again. So you, you, you've dealt with the technology, which is one of the, what I describe as three arrows to Aquis's bow. The other, one, of course, is already the exchange. And then the stock exchange facility for IPOs. Can you explain the difference of the two roles that we haven't discussed so far? And also, you've elaborated quite well about your commission charges for your clients. And give a reason why the outside world that doesn't know the incredible facilities. Now, I pay a compliment because they are, uh, Chris, why they should avail themselves of your services. Well, I think uh, one of the things I keep on getting, and, and you know, we've been talking a lot to you know, uh, Treasury government and, and regulators. And one of the first things I always say is like, you know, regrettably, you know, we're probably the company, I'm the person you've never heard of, and we're the company you may not have heard of, but one in 20 transactions by value across the whole of Europe in equities is conducted by Aquis. Uh, and people then sort of get pr pretty shocked by that. Um, talking about the Aquis Stock Exchange, I find that fascinating. This country is absolutely brilliant in raising capital for startups. We have SEIS, we have EIS. If you are an entrepreneur and you have a track record and you have a good idea, you will raise capital through friends and family, family offices, and the tax breaks that are given through the EIS schemes. Compared to the rest of Europe, we probably have more startups than, than almost any other, uh, any other nation. Um, and that is tremendous. The problem we've got is that, and, and, and we saw this in the Lord Hill Review, and I think Lord Hill did a fantastic job, but the government wants to see all the unicorns that are created in the UK stay in the UK. And that's where I think this strategy is flawed, is that if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a tech entrepreneur, but any entrepreneur, and you built your business into this billion, multi-billion pound business, you're going to go to NASDAQ. That's a fact. And the first thing is you're going there because you're going to get a higher rating and therefore you're going to make more money. And the second thing is that people will start questioning, why aren't you going there? Because that's where everybody goes. That's the dream. If you're an Israeli company, you're not stopping in London. You're going straight to New York because you know, it's almost seen as, oh, well, it's not the right place to be. So what I've been saying to people is, look, you've lost that battle. You can't get today's unicorns. But what we need to do is where this country is really bad is in scale up capital. The only way that a company, when it starts to prove itself, having started itself, through the startup capital, is it goes off to private equity, it goes to venture capital, and those private equity firms then take you off the NASDAQ. But if we provide capital, when these companies are sort of 20 million, 80 million, 100 million pound market cap, many of them are going to become the unicorns of the future. So this country has lost today's unicorns, but it can keep through the public markets tomorrow's unicorns. And that is where Aquis sits. That's the purpose behind the Aquis Stock Exchange. We want to be through you know, proportionate rules and appropriate trading mechanisms, the supply of capital to these growth businesses so that they can be quoted and listed at an earlier stage of their life. And that is really important because what it does, it will help boost the economy. It helps employment. It helps these companies to grow. And it's a different and more accessible way of getting capital.
And we need to do that through the retail market. The public markets are called public markets for a reason. And the irony of it is today is that we actually don't get the public in public markets at IPOs. So the things that we really, really want to push for um, are very much about how we get the public back into public markets, how we get capital out to young companies, and how we can help grow these companies as an alternative exchange. And to have challenge to an incumbent is really important. Why is America successful? It has two major exchanges, NYSE and NASDAQ. And what the European markets only have one major exchange per country, and that is wrong. I mean, the old days when I was first told that a country is made up of an army, a flag and a stock exchange have gone. You know, we don't trade that way. We don't even think that way. And therefore, there has to be a challenge exchange in Europe. And that is going to be Aquis. And that's why we're here. The only bit I would add, Alistair, to it is that we, we've seen the business secretary over the past few days, you know, try to defend the city of London's position against exactly what you're what you're talking about. You know, the movement of arm and so on. I'm sure I don't need to go through the details with you. Um, do you feel as though Aquis is adding to that? And are you do, 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 would you welcome government help? I mean, do you have any relationship with the business secretary and so on? We, we do have a strong relationship with government now, uh, and it's really helped as being chair of the business council for City UK's business council. And I think, you know, we are being really understood now that we are a solution to a problem that Britain has in a post-Brexit environment. We have to make Britain very, very attractive as a place for people to conduct business, particularly to raise capital. And Aquis is a solution there. And I think, you know, on a point that you raise about, you know, what are the differences here? In my way, and I, and I love those sort of analogies, but actually companies are very much like children. They start small, they grow, and they mature. And when we have our children, we send them off to primary school. And at primary school, you're not really being educated on particular subjects. We don't throw sort of Thucydides at them. We give these children a chance of how to understand how to learn. And we expect behaviors. And we have specialist teachers who teach them to do that. Then we move them to a secondary school where we protect them. We give more pressure on them. We give them homework. And we push them and we teach them in a completely different way. And ultimately, for those, not me, but for most people, they go off to university and they're under a guidance of a professor. A completely different way of learning. Now, that's very similar to companies. When they start, it is not appropriate for them to suddenly be thrown into a university. And the problem we've got today is companies that go public tend to have to act like BP or, or, or Vodafone or Shell or something like that. And therefore, we don't have the proportionality of governance and the appropriateness of a trading mechanism. And so what we've done at Aquis is create the schools so you can stay in one school throughout your life. But in the segment, what we call the access segment, allows a company which has a different set of regulation, a different trading mechanism, and is really the primary school for companies. And they can learn how to be public companies. And then we move them into the secondary school, which we call Apex. And the market cap there, to, currently we've got about 21 stocks, market cap about 80 million, something like that. And they stay in this sector right the way until they become sort of billion pound businesses. And then they move to the main market, which is the university. Now, during the Apex segment, we protect them. We ban short selling you know, by third parties. Market makers can short sell. We have a whole set of rules and things that are proportionate and appropriate for the company itself. And of course, that's incredibly attractive to the entrepreneur who wants to maintain control while being a public company and yet 
not have to go and set a standard of being an HSBC when your revenues are still, you know, growing at a fast rate, but are not proportionate um, or appropriate in the way that we have to, you know, uh, govern uh, a company like HSBC. Alistair, um, the, I was in awe of the performance of uh, Actress in the 18 months we were in lockdown, which frankly was horrible, but you proved as a company that if your technology is good enough, that you can actually maintain, in fact, grow your business, which is what you did significantly. But there's no substitute, I put it to you, for what I call eyeball to eyeball in terms of trying to attract new business. I mean, you are a past master at presentation and you've no doubt put together, as I've met some of them, a sales team. Um, and this is where you're probably, in the next couple of years, going to want to make your quantum leap forward, isn't it? Because you've got the Paris office, which Michael will discuss with you in a few minutes, but I, I'm just onto the basis of, um, of sales, which I think when you have the facilities that you do have, selling them is really where your future lies and it's an integral part of your operation. It is. And I think, yes, the world changed during COVID as far as technology is concerned. Um, most people have never heard of Teams or Zoom beforehand and now it's a common practice that everybody uses it, even if it's for dinners or whatever. Um, and... We were very fortunate in the fact that we'd built a technology that allowed us completely and utterly remotely. And even in January, when, when COVID first started, we actually went to the regulator and said, if this thing turns really bad, uh, which at that time we didn't think it would, but if it did, I want to have a couple of days where we entirely work from home. We'll keep a skeleton staff and tell them to do nothing in the office. But we want to make quite certain that we can actually function entirely remotely. So we were really, really adopter. Uh, to having to work at home. And you're right, we, you know, that's good, but there's nothing, nothing like face-to-face -face contact for people when it comes to sales. And I'm afraid I'm of the camp and maybe of the age that it is to me very, very important to have that eyeball contact. And I think one of the problems, not just at Aquis, but I think it is a problem in, in, in the city or maybe finance right the way across the world is getting staff back. I find today we get our senior staff in the office. I find that we get our junior staff in the office who are keen to learn. But I, I can understand that it's the group of people who are in their 30s, had children. Life is easier to be able to work from home. But what, of course, is so important is it's not just the sale of being able to be in front of somebody, but it's also the internal education of how do young people learn if they're not being taught by the good people in the office who can show them exactly what to do. And I really feel sorry for the younger generation that if that continues, I think they will miss out. I mean, I go, you go back to your very first question of sort of like what it was like at Morgan Grenfell and you didn't go to university. Well, I learned from fantastic people who showed me what to do, literally, you know, by being there. If you can't be there, then there's a problem. And I think the world has got a problem today. We need to find ways of getting people back into the office. And it does, unless you, your sales is not gonna grow as fast as you would like them to, unless you actually physically go and see people. So I'm very much in the camp that travel will come back. People will go and uh, go face to face with people. And it's a must. It's, it's not a question of, oh, the world has changed, the paradigm shifted. Maybe we won't have five days a week for everybody all year, but we will have more than we currently have today. And, and you couldn't drink your, your bottle of port, could you, on Zoom? I mean, that's the... You know. <laughs> <laughs> I think the sad thing is you probably can drink your bottle of port by Zoom on your own, but there's, there's a very, very different problem now, there rather we, than the one we, that we, I had. 
we, we, we talked about your advantage over, um, as you see it, over the LSE and Deutsche Bus and Euros and X and so on. But you have, and, and you, you alluded to this earlier on, that you've got, what, 5% of the European market quite now. And, and, and we know that you've opened an office in Paris again. So it's, it's all, almost become full circle. That, that looks like a very clever strategic move. Take us through it. Well, you know, we had to. Everybody had to have an office in EU 27 post-Brexit if you were going to continue to conduct the business you had. You had to find a solution whereby whether your client was EU 27 and wanted to trade in the UK or whether it was EU 27 and wanted to trade in EU 27, you had to have the solution for that problem. And the only way you could do that was have a physical location and a license in EU 27 country. Um, and we did what everybody else did and looked around, you know, should we actually be in Holland or should we be in Ireland or should we be in Germany and whatever. And we came to the conclusion that actually France was ideal. Slightly fortunate because obviously I have a house in France. Our head of sales at the time uh, was living and has always lived in Paris. Um, you know, we had very strong French connections. And, and I will say you know, there was a, an argument uh, internally, you know, a, a, not an argument, but a discussion internally about, you know, all your peer group is going to Holland. Why aren't you going there? And I felt very strongly that Europe is very, very much um, the strength of Europe is with France and Germany. And those are the countries. Now, not necessarily careful what I say here, but obviously it's a public public announcement. But, you know, those regulators are well known for um uh, you know, being sort of dominant as such within Europe. And my view was very much, I would rather be on the side of one of those regulators, them fighting for us as somebody who is part of that group, than actually try and fight against them. Now, my peers all went off to Holland, which is obviously a lot more English spoken, a lot more like the FCA as a regulator. And we went straight to Paris. And I've never regretted that decision. I think it was a really good decision. Um, I love working with the AMF and the ACPR. I think the French are, have been very open to us. You know, it, it, it was a good deal. And of course, when you're forced to have an office, there's no point in having it and just having a nameplate there. You actually might as well, with the sunk cost, go and utilize that office and use it as a beachhead, in effect, to have more business in Europe. And that's exactly what we're doing. So we're growing the Paris office now. Jonathan Cleland, who I know um, you, you had on your, on your program before, um, he is now the chief executive officer of our French office. We met, ironically, many, many years, 20 years ago in Paris when we were both working out there. Um, he speaks fluent French and, um, you know, he's running that office and growing it and uh, doing a great job. Just moving on to the next thing. I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased, but I have to say somewhat surprised that the relationship between the regulatory, regulators in Paris and yourself is so good. Because when you think of the antagonism caused by Macron, towards the UK government, and I, this is not a political statement because I don't think our relationship with them has been at all useful or helpful, but overall because of COVID and because subsequently in the last couple of months, Brexit negotiations have been an absolute shambles. I mean, the May Hammond administration, in my opinion, never had the heart in negotiating a decent deal for UK financial services, which really upset me when you consider the financial services provides about 11% of GDP. Uh, and also the inability with uh, Michel Barnier to be able to get on with uh, David Frost. We have to start, in my opinion, Alistair, being grown up and stop throwing the toys out of the pram, which is what I think the European Union, and particularly France, uh, have seen themselves as the 
now the unofficial head, and start to work with each other again. Um, have you found much resistance? I mean, I think um, just adding a little side bit on your uh, acquisition of Next, which seemed to take forever with the regulators over here, is now proving to be a great success. But coordinating all that, um, something has to be done about this, what I call shambolic um, situation with the Brexit negotiations. First thing, I wholeheartedly agree with you that financial services should, been part of, should have been part of the Brexit deal. It wasn't. It's a big mistake. But Huge. You, I, you can't go back in life and look at all the mistakes that were made and try and correct them. You move forward. And I think the other thing you need to notice here is politics is always going to take place. People care about elections. Macron was concerned about his election. It was probably far closer than he wanted. Boris Johnson's going to be concerned about the future elections here and politicking will take place. At the core, though, when you really get down to it, people want to do business. And it doesn't matter, Brexit or no Brexit, whether you're a supporter or not supporter, there has been trade with the United Kingdom and Europe for thousands of years. And there will continue to be trade with Europe and the UK for the next thousands of years. So, you know, what we need to do is make certain under the current rules that we can find a way of working well. Now, it is clear post-Brexit that the relationship between the FCA and other regulators in the UK, uh, sorry, in Europe, has, has clearly deteriorated, but not to the extent that there is no speaking whatsoever. What I have found is that when you really get down to the heart of it, that people do want to find solutions, they do want to find, and then they spend their time talking to MPs to try and get this through so that the politics is removed. Um, and, and, and if we don't do that, both sides have a serious problem. People are always asking me, you know, is the UK going to be the Singapore of, uh, of, of Europe and can it do this? Yeah, the UK has a phenomenal chance now, a phenomenal chance of becoming a great venue for finance, opening itself up, changing its rules. And I'm hugely impressed in what's gone on with the Khalifa report, the Lord Hill review, the wholesale markets review, and all the things that the government has pushed, the regulator and treasury have worked hard on. And it's very impressive. But on the other hand, you're also seeing things happening in the EU. And the EU is not going to fall down and just roll over. And they're looking. And actually, we start getting competition amongst regulators. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. It means we can look at different models, different ways of doing business. And I think in the end, I'm an optimist. You don't start an exchange unless you're an optimist. Um, and I am very optimistic that we will find positive solutions over the coming years. And this will be just a blip in history. And um, we will be able to conduct business. Yes, you're going to have to have your offices locally in the, in the EU27 country. Yes, you're going to probably comply with slightly different rules in the UK to what you do in the European Union. But overall, there will still be, when people invest, they will look at Europe as a continent rather than a separate group of countries. And that is very, very positive for investment. Can I... Can, can I take you forward to, to, to the, the future. You've been expressing things very compellingly about the financial services sector and so on, but the, the world is changing, isn't it? It looks like globalization is, is sort of coming to an end. I mean, maybe, maybe that will continue, maybe it won't. Maybe more countries are more worried about their, you know, their, their, um, their, their, their so-called strategic industries. Maybe they're more worried about their food. Maybe they're, they're closing their borders. The UN's been talking about food corridors and all this kind of thing. You know, how, 
have we changed dramatically or is this geopolitical shift what the same thing as you're looking at the financial service as, as a blip in, in the general optimism we have for the future? No, I think that's a tremendous question, Michael, because I actually think the geopolitical situation has shifted. And in the past, when geopolitical things happen, they tend to be a one-time shift. Uh, you know, countries' borders change. It, there's a, they don't just suddenly move back. Um, and I think in this case here, what the tragedy, what we've seen with Russia and Ukraine, which is you know absolutely horrendous on, on every level, will bring Europe, the rest of Europe, closer together. And, you know, for one evil thing that takes place, some good comes out of it. And the good that will come out of it is the realisation that we do have to work closely together. And I do agree with your point that globalisation probably has changed in, uh, for our lifetime. That doesn't mean that international trade won't exist. It will. But it won't form under what we understand a global. So, you know, I remember years and years ago in banks at sort of senior levels discussing about how we globalize a business and cease to be an international business. And I think what happens now with those same conversation in banks will be taking place. How do we become an international company and not a global one because of the various issues that arise today? I think that becomes irreversible, very sadly, but I think that's what the case is. Just before we bring this to a close, it's been absolutely fascinating. A couple of points. Alistair, I'd like to make with you. I mean, I'm encouraged by what you say about Europe, but I am still in the same breath uh, concerned because everybody in Europe seems to have their own agenda. And I don't see the European Union pulling together particularly strongly at the moment. I mean, Germany is so reliant on oil and gas from uh, Russia. Italy suddenly decides, oh, well, maybe I ought to pay my bills to Russia in rubles. Really? And Macron sits at the end of the table and has done very little really to help the uh, what I call the military cause, even though he's tried to be the peacemaker. I just I concern myself that if it doesn't suit a, an individual country, they're not going to comply. Are you saying that this is going to come to a head and give it time to iron itself out another six months and they will pull together, whether it's under NATO rather than under the European Union? That I would see as greatly encouraging. Can you answer me question now first? <laughs> I, I will answer your question, which is actually about really about change. It goes back to that point about yeah. human nature. Now, in the case here, people don't want to change. So you're talking about Germany doesn't want to change because it doesn't really want to take oil. Uh, you know, it must take oil from Russia and you know, people will pay in rubles, etc. There is a sort of various academic studies on change and which basically go down despite all the sort of uh, maths that goes behind it to say that people will not change unless they see a significant benefit over the status quo. It's as simple as that. Now, what is the choice that Germany has? Yep, they can keep on paying for oil. But if the border of Russia gets closer and closer to Germany and Europe itself then becomes under risk, there's sudden move from, well, do you know what? We can pay for higher oil and we need oil elsewhere. And the same with people who say, well, we'll pay it in rubles, but actually you're supporting a crime and actually that could ultimately affect them as a country. And the people of that country start to vote against you because of your opinion, you will change. And therefore it is all about behavioral change and change management. And I strongly believe that as the Russian uh, crisis, the Ukrainian situation continues, people will wake up, smell the coffee, 
and realize that Europe is incredibly important together and they will make those changes and they will do the deals with other countries to get established oil. They will not pay in rubles. And if they don't, we suffer a potential catastrophe in Europe. And that is one thing at the end I don't believe will happen. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Lee. Alison, a joy as always. Thank you so much. Thank you.